I want to turn to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7 today. And over the past week, we'll just say that my mind has been fixed on the crucial urgency of prayer. Has there ever been a time when you felt more compelled to pray than perhaps you feel compelled to pray at this moment? I feel the great urgency to pray as we face a global pandemic. It was only 100 years ago that our country and our world faced the Spanish flu and a great flu epidemic that wreaked havoc all through the world. Some 50 million people died because of that pandemic. 50 million people. That's more than died in World War I. I believe 75 million died in World War II. It's hard to imagine that amount of death and destruction. Think about all the things that the world went through in the first 40 years of the 20th century. Two world wars, pandemics, all the trouble that men went through. When we see things like that happen, and in our world today we are so pampered, we are so sheltered, we have been hedged about in such a way that that hasn't affected us the way that it affected some of your grandparents and some of your parents. But as we face these things, the unthinkable, the terrifying, we are reminded of our need of God and we feel this urgent need to pray. As we think about this and the need to pray, and as I was thinking on this this past week, I also thought on the incredible need to humble ourselves. We talked about sufferings recently, and in our message last week at Flint River, we spoke on God's sovereignty and how God is sovereign over the plagues. God has authority and control over sickness. God has authority and control over illness, over the famines and pestilences and dearths of the land. If he didn't, we would have no confidence to pray to him and to ask him to intervene. But we know that he has power over that. And as we talked about it, we brought the point out that no matter the cause, whether it be a suffering that is common to man, something that is simply the result of the sin of Adam. We live in a fallen world, and because this world has fallen, there are thorns and thistles and sorrows and cursings, and this world groans. It groans in travail waiting for the coming of Christ. Whether it be sufferings that are common to man, Whether it be divine chastening, if we have been chastened of God, if God has sent affliction to teach us not to sin, if we be suffering persecution for our faith, if we suffer even as the man who was born blind or Lazarus who was suffered to die, if we suffer for the glory of God, that God would overrule it, that His name might be published through the world, our reaction to suffering is all the time in every occurrence to be the same. We are to humble ourselves and pray. We don't know the mind of the Lord. We certainly don't know why things happen in the world around us. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? But one thing's for sure, when we face a global pandemic, even to the extent that our churches close their doors and we can no longer gather in public worship, friends, it is the time to humble ourselves. It isn't the time for pride It isn't the time for boasting. 
Well, I've heard much boasting in recent weeks by politicians of the great power of the American empire and how we of all people in the world will solve this problem. It is not a time to boast. It is a time to humble ourselves and to pray. We need to humble ourselves and pray. As I thought on humbling ourselves and praying and seeking God in the face of this COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, my mind repeatedly went to a very beloved passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And I'm sure as I was speaking on this concept of praying and humbling ourselves, your mind as you listened this morning probably went to that beloved passage. It probably sparked the memory of this passage that you might have committed to memory. You may have read it. You've certainly heard it preached about if you've been in a church for any number of time. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Over the coming weeks on Sundays here at Flint River, it's my intent, if God would be my helper, to speak on the various phases of seeking God's face and seeking healing from this passage. Now read this with me once again. If my people, as we introduce this to you today, we notice that this is a promise that isn't given to the world in general, but it's a promise that's given to His people. Now initially as God says this to Solomon, and we'll give you the backstory of all of this in just a moment, Initially, when he gave this promise to him, his people were the people of Israel, the physical nation of Israel, his chosen nation in the world. And so primarily the application was to the nation of Israel, that if their nation suffers in any number of ways, if they humble themselves and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then God will hear, God will forgive, and God will heal. He will hear, He will forgive, and He will heal. In our present day, the primary application of this, I believe, is to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Who are the people that are called according to His name? Well, I know that when our country was founded, they founded it with such a mind to honor their Creator, and as they framed this country's government, I know that they recognized that men were given inalienable rights, endowed by their Creator with these inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I recognize that our founding fathers believed in the Creator. But the people that are called by His name, they are the sheep of Christ, the people of God. And so, while this can apply to the healing of our land, and certainly it's needed. I think more than anything, it can apply to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask you the question this morning, does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ need healing today? Amen. Does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ need revival today? Have we looked at the rosters of our churches and seen that year after year after year, the number of members of the church declines and declines and declines, and churches after church, church after church after church, churches through the land close their doors. Americans are 
enamored and infatuated with every form of entertainment, every form of pleasing the flesh, and, le- and yet no one remembers God. No one serves Him, it seems, but a small number of people who desire to honor Him with their lives. I believe that we stand in need of healing in our churches, and most certainly we stand in need of healing in our land. As our economy has been knocked into the dirt as we're now huddling in our homes, afraid even for our own lives because of this pandemic that has come to our shores, we stand in need of healing. A divided, a divided Congress, a divided Senate, politicians who seek to prolong their own power for decades. And even in the midst of all this, when we look to them for leadership, all they can do is criticize and complain and sling mud. What a filthy, broken, disgusting display of human carnality that we find in Washington today. And it's that way in every country because we live in a fallen world and our land needs healing. Now that sounds very negative. Sometimes you have to have the negative before you can get the positive. And as we read the backstory behind this glorious promise that gives us, we'll see that Solomon begs God when these things happen to this nation of Israel. God, when they seek you and when they pray towards this place, please, dear God, hear from heaven and give healing when they find themselves in the midst of famine or plague or even military occupation. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I was shown statistics this morning. It's never good to show preachers statistics on a Sunday morning, especially when the statistics pertain to sin. You would think that facing a global pandemic that could take out, as it did in Italy, nearly 10% of, our, of those in our population who received the virus, 3.4% was the global mortality rate a couple of weeks ago. In America, it's around 1%. You'd think in the face of that, that Americans would turn from their iniquity. But did you know that I saw recently, just this morning, the statistic that Internet pornography usage had risen some 12% since everyone is stuck in the home. You're not getting it, folks. You're not getting it. It's serious. God is not mocked. Now, I don't stand up here and tell you that this is happening because God has judged us. I don't know the mind of the Lord. But I know this. I know He judged Egypt. And He sent plague after plague after plague. And their heart was hardened. I know that he threatened to wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth. Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. And they were spared from God's wrath because they repented. I know that many times in the history of Israel, they were chastened because of their wickedness, and God sent them plagues until they repented. I don't know if God has sent this plague upon us, but I do know The answer to it is always the same. We need to humble ourselves. We need to pray. We need to seek His face. And lastly, we need to turn from our wicked ways. 
And God has promised that He will hear from heaven and that He will heal our land. And our land needs to be healed. Another statistic that I saw recently was that if Planned Parenthood would be shut down in this country because of coronavirus for simply two weeks, more unborn baby lives would be saved than all the people in the country who have died so far from coronavirus, perhaps even in the entire world. Thousands of babies die in this country each day to abortion. The key to healing is not only prayer, but it's also turning from our wicked ways. As we begin to give you the backstory of this, Solomon is king of Israel. This is directly following the days of King David, but unlike David, Solomon's father, Solomon has been permitted by God to build God's house. David lamented in his own life that he dwelled in a palace made of stone and wood, and no doubt it must have been a very beautiful palace that David lived in as king of Israel. But God, David laments, dwells in a tabernacle. Now you and I know that God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle. God, His throne is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever He has pleased. But in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, God did reveal Himself. He manifested His presence there in the holiest of holies over the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubs as a pillar of smoke before them. And His presence was displayed unto them and there was a very real sense in which God was in the tabernacle. But what does the word tabernacle mean? It simply has reference to a tent. Well, it was a tent with thick fabric. Some people estimate three to four inches thick. It was a portable temple, a portable house of worship that they would carry from place to place. And God would be worshipped in that place. David laments in his life that God was worshipped in the tabernacle in a tent and he himself had a stone and wood house to live in and David begins to make plans to build the house of the Lord. You might remember that David asked the prophet of God about this and this prophet comes to David. He says, it's a good idea. Go ahead and do it. And then he goes on his way and God, his word comes to the prophet and the prophet turns around and goes right back to David and says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. God says, no, you cannot do this. You've been a man of war, but I will bless your seed to build the house of God. And as we know, initially, the more immediate fulfillment of that prophecy was in Solomon building the house of God, the temple, Solomon's temple. But we know that this prophecy also points forward to another day, a day when the Lord Jesus Christ would come, the seed of David, and build the house of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus said in the book of Matthew chapter 16 that upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the son of David who would come and build the house of God. Amen. In the book of Second Chronicles, Chapter 3, David's desire to build this house began to be realized in the kingship of his son Solomon. 
chapter 3 and verse 1 of Second Chronicles, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, and there the Lord appeared unto David his father, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he began to build the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Solomon begins to build the house of God. What God had spoken to him through, I believe, Nathan the prophet came to pass. You'll be able to build the house of God, your, your son, and he will build it, and I will have a house in the world. David's son Solomon is fulfilling this prophecy. We're no stranger to construction projects here at Flint River. We've, in the time that I've been here, we've built an office in the back, and we've built some restrooms in the back, and then we built restrooms in the front, and added a sound room as a studio to broadcast our radio program from and a cry room for our little ones to be taken to when they cry and need to be changed and fed during service. And presently, we've got a little renovation going in the lunchroom. Nothing can make a pastor and the deacons more anxious than a building project that never seems to be completed. And we have at least one deacon here this morning who would amen that. Uh, Brother Hewland would amen that. We look forward to getting our building projects done. According to the book of 1 Kings chapter 6, this building project, 1 Kings 6.38, took seven years to be completed. Seven years in the building of God's house in Jerusalem. And so you can imagine as Solomon's project is completed, and you can read here on your own all the various descriptions of the house of God, how it was overlaid with gold, how precious stones were all there. You can read of the palm trees and all of the things that were there in this temple of God. You can read of the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubims being placed there. What a beautiful place this must have been. Seven years in the making. When they completed that project, you can imagine the, the festival that they had in Jerusalem as they consecrate and dedicate this temple. I hesitate to refer to it as a party because in our country when people party, when they celebrate, it's usually with the most extreme forms of debauchery. Just last month, right before a plague entered into our land, we had what was known as Mardi Gras. And it's a day that is the... Fat Tuesday, the day before Lent begins, among those who celebrate Lent and how that began, Mardi Gras, they said, well, we've got 40 days of fasting that we're going to do in the name of God where we're going to fast and we're not going to eat meat. And so the day before that, we're just going to go live it up. We're going to party. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to be merry. And then we can go fast and make penance for all the sin that we do, all the debauchery that we commit. And the party that they have has evolved to the extent that there are parades with drunkenness and nakedness and fornication. And I had the misfortune in 1999 of marching in the Endymion Parade, which is the largest parade, the longest parade in New Orleans. And as our high school band was there, I've told you this story before, we were told by the adults as they dropped us off with no chaperones or hardly any chaperones at a mall, you can hang out at the mall, you can walk around the Mississippi, but do not go to the French Quarters. And do not go to Bourbon Street. Well, you can imagine where the first place every high schooler went with no chaperone in Mardi Gras, the week of Mardi Gras. It looked like Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
There was a line of us and we went straight to Bourbon Street. I was sick at the things that I saw. It was disgusting. God is not mocked. Solomon has a party, but it's not the party like Mardi Gras that we had just a few weeks ago before the plague began to strike our land. He gathers the elders. He gathers the tribal heads. He gathers the priests. He gathers the people together, and he begins to consecrate this temple. You read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Let's look at verse 2. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant out of the city of the Lord, out of, uh, of the Lord, out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now think about this. The ark is picked up, and it has to be carried in a very specific way. You might remember this poor guy named Uzzah in, I believe, David's day when the ark has been captured by the Philistines and they go pick it up on the back of a cart and the cart begins to shake and poor Uzzah reaches up and grabs it to stabilize it and God struck him dead because there was only a certain way the ark was to be handled. God is serious business. And so in accordance with the law, the priests bear this ark upon the staves through the rings and they carry the ark and they place it within the temple. It had been in the tabernacle previously where all of the sacrifices had been applied and God had been worshipped in the holiest of holies. All that took place around the tabernacle, the offerings, the sacrifices, the blood, the smoke, the incense, the burnt offerings. Think of this moment, the awe that must have fallen over the congregation as the priests begin to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the house of God. Thinking about the Ark, within it you have the law, the tablets, symbolizing God's holiness and His righteousness, the law that we've also all broken. In it you had a manna, God's provision of food. In it you had Aaron's rod that did bud. Imagine if you're carrying a staff and it begins to put on green leaves. Above that ark, you have the mercy seat, the cherubims with their outstretched arms. <clears throat> By the way, I don't have coronavirus. I do have seasonal tree allergies. And so you can, you can laugh at me as we take my sanitary quarantine water here and enjoy a glass of water. You know that tree allergies just about kill me every year and um, it's not coronavirus, it's most certainly allergies. But this ark, on top of it, has these two cherubims with outstretched arms that forms the mercy seat. The word mercy seat in the New Testament sometimes translates into the word propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our mercy seat. What stands between the broken law and God Almighty is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our propitiation, our mercy seat. I brought this point out twice recently. As Jesus was in the tomb, the angels stood at each side of the place where Jesus' body laid, at the top and the bottom, at the head and at the feet. 
And I believe that the Ark of the Covenant was a foreshadowing of Jesus, our propitiation being even raised from the dead as He laid there in the tomb, depicting Jesus at His crucifixion and at His resurrection. The hush comes over the crowd as the Ark of the Covenant is moved. All the men of Israel assembled under the king in the feast, which is in the seventh month. The Levites took the ark, took the tabernacle, and they began to commemorate this. What a special time in Israel's history this certainly was. Solomon then blesses the people. And skipping ahead in chapter 6, he stretches out his arms and he begins to bless the people and he begins to pray unto God, interceding on behalf of this people as he offers this prayer of dedication for this newly built temple of God. Now, I couldn't help but being, but be struck with a sense of irony as we read the dedication and commemoration of God's temple, the house of God in the Old Testament, in a day when the house of God in this country is empty. Think of the irony. Think of the irony. Oh, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. Solomon begins to pray to God, and he intercedes on their behalf. One part of his prayer that I've always found interesting is, Lord, if they find themselves in captivity, and they turn and they pray towards Jerusalem, towards the house of God. Lord, hear their prayer. And God is pleased to hear their prayer. When Daniel was in Babylonian captivity, do you know which direction he faced when he prayed? He faced Jerusalem. He faced the house of God. And he prayed. And God heard his prayer. What could we learn about Christ from that? What did Jesus say as He spoke to those unbelieving Jews that asked for a sign? He said, destroy this temple, and on the third day, I will raise it up again. Jesus' body is a temple. We pray today by turning our prayers and our affections unto Jesus. We come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. He asked God to hear if they sin against their neighbor. Verse 22, If any man sin against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear and the oath come before thine altar of thy house, then hear from heaven and judge. He prays and he intercedes. If any lose to an enemy, if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and they shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before thee in this house. Then hear thou from the heavens and forgive the sin of thy people 
and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest them and to their fathers. He prays in the event of no rain. Certainly that's foreign to us over the past three months here in North Alabama. It was interesting, over the month of January, we had some, by day 30, 20 days wherein it rained. But we're no stranger to droughts in the land. Several times in recent history there have been droughts that turned the grass brown. Last summer was one such that I went an entire month without having to cut my grass because there was just no grass to cut. Everything was brown. If the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee. If God sends a drought because people are sinners. If they pray towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin. When thou dost afflict them. Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel. Solomon is praying to God and he's asking that God would forgive them when they pray in that place or directed to that place. Verse 28, if there is a dearth in the land, the next thing that we read is pestilence. The word pestilence, do you know what it means? It means epidemic. If there is an epidemic in the land... If there be a blasting or a mildew which would damage the crops or locusts or caterpillars, if their enemies besiege them and in the cities of their land whatsoever sore or whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all thy people, when every one shall know his own sore and his own grief and shall spread forth his hands in this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and render unto every man according unto all his ways whose heart thou knowest. For thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men. I find it no coincidence in Hebrews 4 when the Apostle Paul wrote about our great high priest unto whom we come boldly a priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, he begins that line of thought by saying that our living word, Christ, divides asunder between soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God, you know the heart. You know our ways. When they ask your forgiveness, dear Lord, please hear from heaven and forgive them. Now following this, there's a seven-day feast, a festival in the land to commemorate the dedication of this temple. Chapter 7 and verse 1, the people respond to this with praise and worship. And I want you to get an image of this because to my understanding, this is not our spiritual experience right now. When Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. In a day of empty church buildings in our land today, oh, that the glory of God would once again fill the house. Amen. 
Now listen, this building is not the house of God. You are the house of God. You are the lively stones that make the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. But as we are separated, as we are isolated, as we are segregated, we find ourselves the target of that wicked one. Do everything within your power, child of God, to study His Word and to communicate with your brothers and sisters in Christ at this time. More than any other time in our lives, we need each other. Someone asked last night the dangers of only online church, and might I say that while online live streaming is a great supplement in a time of quarantine, it is not church the way that God has prescribed it. The word church, ecclesia, ecclesia, is to what? Is to assemble. Without assembly, we can't maintain church. But I want you to think of the danger of one sheep that becomes separated from the fold. What happens to the sheep that is separated from the fold? He becomes the target of the wolf. And so I would beg God's people in this moment not to become isolated, for we need Him. I long for the day where the glory of, Lord, of the Lord fills this house once again. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord. Listen to this. Because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Imagine if God's glory was so present in the house of God that those who minister in the house of God could not even draw nigh unto the building. God and God alone was in the house. And His presence was so thick, His presence was so intense that men could not even go into the house. What an awesome and yet terrifying experience that must have been. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house had filled this place, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground and upon the pavement, and they worshipped and they praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. These words were no new statement to them. These are common words in their hymnal, in their psalms. They begin to sing to God the praise that He deserves. Now, let me ask you the question. I know that as primitive Baptist, old school, predestinarian Baptist, we get the reputation of being the frozen chosen. What if we came to the house of God whenever it is that we are able to meet again in our entirety and we bowed our face flat on the pavement and we began to pray to God and to raise our hands to God and to praise God? I think something amazing would happen. If you do that in today's time, you'd be looked at as if you've lost your mind. And that is exactly what they had done. But understand, they were in the direct presence of God. This isn't fabricated. It isn't when people put on a show and fall out in their emotional infatuation with fake speaking in tongues. This is real. God is there. 
and they hit their faces before him. And they cry out, he is good. Let me just say, child of God, in the midst of a plague, of a pestilence, of an epidemic, God is good. And praise his name, this good God has mercy that endures forever. Amen. And his mercies are new every morning. They would offer sacrifice. The priests waited at their offices. There were psalms of David performed to the harp. The priests sounded trumpets before them, which was a call most of the time to attention. They would use a trumpet to sound so people knew when and what to do. Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and here's what sets up our passage for the next few weeks. The Lord appeared unto Solomon by night, and he said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. Solomon prayed, and he asked God to bless them in this house of worship in every conceivable type of affliction that they would face. And God comes to Solomon that night, and he says, I have heard thy prayer, and I have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no, no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people... Now, we're very clear to say that the origin of pestilences in the world is sin, the sin of Adam. God is not the author of sin. But we would be remiss. In fact, we would intentionally have to ignore a great bulk of the Bible to say that God never sends a pestilence as a judgment. If I send pestilence among my people, if my people, listen to me, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. As we take these one at a time, this week we want to look just briefly at the subject of humility. God calls us to be humble people. The word humility is defined in our contemporary language as a low view of one's self-importance. A low view of one's self-importance. The biblical way of expressing humility is to think soberly of oneself. In fact, you find this language in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as Paul exhorts us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man, that is every man among us, every man in the, not only in the church, but every man that has been born of the Spirit of God, the measure of faith, which the term measure of faith is a 
phrase that describes our own individual packages of spiritual gifting. In other words, Paul wrote through the grace that was given unto him. Some of us have been given the gift of giving. Some of us have been given the gift of cheerfulness. Some of us have been given the gift of ministering, serving one another. Some of us have been given the gift of ruling, overseeing the church. Some of us the gift of teaching, of preaching, of exhortation, so on and so forth. And Paul calls this the measure of faith, but he tells us to think soberly. We're not to walk around in self-loathing or self-pity. Rather, the biblical concept of humility is to think soberly. Biblical humility is also synonymous with the concept of meekness. The best definition I've ever read of the word meek meekness is lack of self-will. To be humble is to be meek. To be meek is to lack self-will. A person who lacks self-will, whose will is he following? He's following the will of God. And he says, God, whatever it is that you command me to do, I will do it. Whatever it is that is thy will in this world, thy will be done. And so we submit ourselves to the will of God. We seek to obey the prescriptive will of God as it is revealed to us in the Word. The humble person is a person who desires the will of God. As we think about ourselves soberly, consider this for just a moment. Humility, to think sober. Thinking soberly means I'm thinking realistically. What are you and I by nature? We are sinners. Without Christ, we are dead in sin. We are lost without Christ. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We can do nothing to please God. We will not come unto Him that we might have life. No man can come to me, He said, except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up again at the last day. That's thinking soberly about humanity without Christ. What am I through Christ? Thinking soberly. I am beloved. I am chosen. I am predestinated. I am called. I am justified. And I will be glorified. Thinking soberly, humility can coexist with great confidence, assurance, and boldness. Hope and humility are not mutually exclusive. Praise God. You see, so many times people think humility is defeatism. Might I suggest to you that in the moment in David's life when he stood before the giant Goliath and said... Saul, King Saul puts his armor on him and David said, I can't use these. They've not been tried. They're too big for me. He looked like a little boy wearing his large father's clothing. When David stood before Goliath with the five smooth stones and buried a stone in the head of that giant and took that giant's head, David was displaying humility. How was David humble in that moment? 
Because David says, my strength and my power is in the Lord Jehovah. And if Jehovah is with me, if God is with me, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the God of creation? He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't egotistical. He didn't stand in his own power. But he knew he stood in the power of God. And in that moment, he was humble, and yet he was bold. He thought soberly of himself, and he thought realistically and in faith on the power of God in his life. Our Lord Jesus Christ epitomized humility. What did he say in the book of Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus epitomizes meekness. What did he say in John chapter 6? I come not to do mine own will, but the will of my Father which has sent me. Jesus ever lived to do the Father's will. His main concern in life is the God-man, as a human being in every way without sin. And yet God incarnate was to continually, constantly, and perfectly obey His Father's will. He was meek. And yet at the same time, he was bold enough to look the Pharisees in the eye and call out their sin. Bold enough to go as a sheep, as a lamb dumb before the shearers. So we open not his mouth. Bold enough to go to the cross of Calvary. Have all of our sins imputed unto him. And to die for us as forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was bold, Jesus was courageous, but Jesus was meek and lowly. A realistic view of oneself. Now this is so opposite of the American ideal, isn't it? Humility. Now as Americans, we are proud. What is one of our favorite songs to perform at the 4th of July? I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. Well, that freedom is not guaranteed. God never guaranteed us freedom the way that we have it today. If that were so, most of His disciples would have had it in church history, and they did not. We have perfect liberty in Christ. That is the liberty that God has brought. This is the opposite of ego. It is the opposite of arrogance. It is the opposite of self-love and self-importance, such as the such is the American way, and yet it is discouraged continually in Scripture. Proverbs 6.17 says, God hates it. Of the things that God hates, one of them is a proud look. Proverbs 16.18 tells us that pride goes before destruction. When we are proud, we open ourselves up for destruction. The last place that we want to consider today is the book of Philippians chapter 2. Christ is our ultimate example on everything. He epitomizes every trait that we are to aspire to. As we think about humility being the first step towards healing, 
as we think about bowing our faces before God, as we think about planting our face square on the ground in front of us and saying, God, you're holy. We are sinful. Dear God, forgive us for the sins of our lives. The greatest example of humility is that of Christ in his incarnation. Understand that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. In John 17, he prays that God would restore unto him the glory that he had with him from before the foundation of the world. Please understand when Jesus came into the world, he did not lay aside his divine nature. He laid aside his glory. And there were times that he was transfigured before them and showed them his glory. Jesus was the Word made flesh, the eternal Son of God. God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This Jesus, and as we read here, the exhortation is to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If you're reading this in other English translations, it more than likely weakens and waters down that language. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Thought it not robbery means that it would not have been stealing from God for Jesus to be equal with God, to say, I am equal with God, to display himself equally as God because he's God. But he made himself of no reputation. We live in a country that is a consumer-driven economy, and consumer-driven economies are fueled by marketing. And yet Jesus made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. Child of God, if you want to be a humble person, be a servant. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice the pattern. Humility leads to submission. Submission leads to obedience. Obedience leads to what? We'll keep reading. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. We live in a self-exalting world. If you want true exaltation, humble yourself and God will exalt you. In His time, in due season. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted Him. May we react to the plague of our day by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, following the pattern of our Savior Jesus Christ, who made Himself of no reputation, but took upon Him the form of a servant, that He may exalt us in due season. May God hear from heaven. May God forgive our sin. And may God heal our land.